Church, let's pray together as we prepare to turn to God's Word. Father, your Word does cross the ages. It's timeless. And we give you thanks and praise for having given it to us that we might know you as you are. Lord, we ask that as we turn to it now that your Holy Spirit would speak. Your Spirit that inspired these words, your Spirit that undergirds these words, sustains these words such that they are truth without error. God, we ask that your word would speak. That's what we would hear. That you would remove distraction. Father, that you would help us to see you as you are so that you might be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, and find verse 21. Galatians 4, verse 21. And if you were with us several weeks ago, we saw the principle at the heart of the apostles' argument, which is union with Christ. Union with Christ, where God, by His grace, through faith, brings us into relationship with Himself by means of His Son. And to illustrate this, we we saw together Paul direct his readers and us as readers to consider the family, where an heir and a servant differ not in the least as regards their freedom while the heir is a youth. However, the moment that child comes of age, he or she receives the full rights of the family. And for Paul, as we saw together, the Galatians were as the heir. Prior to the appointed time, the moment when they heard the gospel, the message of how God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law, prior to that time, they were slaves. As Paul wrote, they were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But then they were set free, or as Paul put it, they became known by God. Where before they'd been burdened by religion, desperately seeking to merit God's favor through obedience and sacrifice, now, filled by God's Spirit who'd been poured into their hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, now the Galatians no longer lived under the law. They were free. And this filled them with joy. It's the emotion that we considered if you were with us last week as we examined Paul's question, what's happened? To all your joy, as he asked the Galatians, what's happened to all your joy? For the apostles, such an emotion was natural to the Christian, meaning just like all black bears are are black and ostriches have two legs and a skinny neck, so too was it natural for the Christian, meaning just that, that a Christian's life can't be devoid of joy because it's rooted in the person of God and he promises to provide it to all his people in his presence. Sadly, the Galatians were abandoning the gospel. They were rejecting their inheritance and losing their joy. And so, as we've seen, Paul is agonizing over them. He's pleading with them, appealing to their minds, and he's appealing to their emotions to remember the truth of the freedom they have in union with Christ and to reject the lies of the Judaizers who were trying to lead them back into slavery. And so it's these two subjects this morning, slavery and freedom that I believe Paul emphasizes in the text that we're about to read together. The slavery of the law and the freedom of the gospel. So are you free? We talked about with our children. Are you free? Let's hear the apostles' words 
in regards to that question, beginning in verse 21, there in chapter 4 where he writes, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the woman or the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it's written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, you are children of promise. At the same time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now, but what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. May God bless the public reading of his word. Church, in this text, Paul is carefully setting Hagar, so Abraham's slave, in actual fact, it's Sarah's slave or servant, but he's setting Hagar and her offspring Ishmael against Sarah, Abraham's wife, and her son who was promised by God, Isaac. So he's setting these two against one another, Hagar and Sarah, and he's using them to model the only two paths before his readers. One leads to slavery, and the other leads to freedom. Now, we've already seen together the apostle appeal to Scripture, and specifically to Abraham in his apology against the Judaizers, those men who'd come from Jerusalem, as we've seen, following his departure and begun preaching a gospel which, as Paul passionately stated, is no gospel at all. Because in their message, this is once the Galatians, according to the Judaizers, once the Galatians began to follow Christ by faith, they became responsible to grow in that faith through obedience to the law. Works, to use a familiar term describing human efforts to please God. Works became the means by which Christians in Galatia were to mature in their faith according to these opponents of Paul. And far from being a simple semantic subtlety, Paul recognized this for what it really was. It was a total gospel reversal marked by division within the community, not unity, fighting, not joy, decay, spiritually decay, not growth. Simply stated, this was as we're going to see a return to slavery. And Paul's already addressed this issue by pointing to Abraham back in chapter 3 when we read that, where he there built a tight but quite in-depth argument for the gospel as it was given to the patriarch who was himself saved by faith in the promised seed, who is Christ. Just as was Moses, the man to whom the law was given, and he himself recognized the folly of what Paul's opponents were endorsing because, as it's written, the righteous will live by what? Faith. And clearly no one is justified before God by the law. Not because the law was bad, but because those who received it were. Because of our sin, the law kept us enslaved until the seed promised Abraham had come. And he had. 
and his name is Jesus. And so we've already seen together Paul appeal to Abraham. Therefore, it's not strange that we find him as the subject of Paul's argument once again. Nor is the apostle's emphasis here on freedom. Only, I believe, in our text, he provides a, a richer explanation of this reality, which will benefit from seeing. And so, to this end, I'd like us to begin together by defining the freedom that the apostle is describing before we examine the allegory that he employs so that together we might see how we can enjoy this freedom that has been so offered to us. So first of all, what is this freedom? And, and in our definition this morning, I'm borrowing from one of my favorite pastor theologians, John Piper, who, who writes, full freedom. So that's, that's the freedom that Paul is addressing in our text that we're seeing together. Biblical freedom, full freedom is what you have when you have no lack of opportunity, no lack of ability, and no lack of desire preventing you from doing what will make you happiest in a thousand years. In other words, there are, and as we saw this with our children to some degree, there are four steps to experiencing this full God-given freedom. It's the opportunity, the ability, the desire, and then unending joy. And Piper provides this beautiful illustration to, to illustrate this freedom. And I'd like to relate that to you so that we can appreciate better how these steps are experienced. So, Piper says, suppose you're on your way to the airport to go skydiving. We'll take skydiving as the activity for our analogy. You're going skydiving for the first time, but on the way your car hits a pothole. You have a blowout. You run into a telephone pole on the way. You are now no longer free to jump, whether you have the ability to or not. Why? Because the opportunity passes you by while you're waiting on the tow truck. So you lack freedom of opportunity. Or suppose you do make it to the airport, Piper continues, but you have no ability at all. You've never studied skydiving. <laughs> You've never learned the first thing about how a parachute works. The opportunity is there, but you don't have the freedom of ability. You're in bondage as it were, to your own lack of know-how. Now, suppose you do make it to the airport. You've been to school, you've been trained in all the abilities that you need, you have, you possess, and you take off on that first jump, but as soon as you look out the window, this would be Josiah's experience if he were to go skydiving, but as soon as you look out that window, all that desire vanishes. It's replaced by this tremendous fear. The opportunities there, the ability and the know-how are there, but you don't have the freedom of desire. No desire whatsoever. And there's an interesting thing about the freedom of desire here, and Piper notes this. He says that you might be able to go ahead and jump without that freedom of desire, but it won't be a free act. For example, you might feel so humiliated in front of your instructor, your dad, maybe it's your wife who's present, that the desire not to be humiliated overcomes the desire not to jump. So you jump. But the emotional experience that ensues is not what we're after as we're defining freedom. You're acting under very uncomfortable external constraints. And so, in a sense, you're like Herod. You're like Herod when his stepdaughter asked for the head of John the Baptist. He didn't want to kill John, did he, according to the scriptures? But he wanted even less to be shamed before his guests. So he acted, but not with the freedom of desire. 
church, you have the freedom of desire when you do what you love to do. As Piper explains, unfortunately, that's the way that a lot of professing Christians in our nation try to keep the commandments of Christ. They don't really delight to do them, but they feel some uncomfortable constraints like social pressure or fear of hell, or maybe it's a desire to impress somebody. And so they go through these outward motions of obedience, but the desire of their heart is fixed somewhere else. So they don't enjoy the freedom of desire which Christ gives when he's being formed in the heart, as Paul tells us there in verse 19 of chapter 4. But there's still one last requirement for full freedom, as Piper points out. One last requirement. Suppose you get to the airport. We'll stick with the analogy of skydiving. Suppose you get to the airport and there's no obstacles. You have all the know-how necessary. You look out the door at the tiny clusters of, of silos and farmhouses, and you just can't wait to jump. You have the freedom of opportunity, the freedom of ability, and the freedom of desire. And so you jump. And as you free fall, unbeknown to you, your parachute malfunctions. It won't open. Are you free? Now, in the first three senses, the answer would be yes, right? But in that critical fourth sense, no. And what you're doing so happily, so freely, is going to kill you. And whether you know it or not, you are in bondage to destruction. And as Piper explains, it would be a mockery to exult in the freedom of an exhilarating freefall if you knew that it was leading you to destruction. So in order to be fully free, it's not enough to have opportunity, ability, and desire to act. The acts you desire to perform have to lead you to Life, indeed, eternal life, not destruction. And this is why, as, as he writes, it's naive for us as Christians, whether we're young or old, to envy the so-called freedom of those who pitch themselves out, so to speak, of the window of sin, and then exult in the free fall, the exhilaration of, of free fall sexual immorality, or free fall greed, or, or free fall drugs or, or free fall envy and luxury they will all pass away like a vapor John tells us in his first letter chapter 2 but those who do the will of the Lord will abide forever so Emmanuel true freedom is not just the opportunity and ability to do what you desire to do it's the opportunity ability and desire to do what will make you happy for eternity are you free in this sense? Do you find lasting joy in living in obedience to God's word as you hunger for holiness, enabled to love Christ in ways that before you heard the gospel, you never believed were possible? Or do you, as Piper suggested, do you find yourself burdened by the thought of a life of holiness? Now you'd rather go to an amusement park than gather with God's people You'd rather watch a movie than, than study God's word. Desire is the last term that you'd use to describe your sentiments towards Sunday's gathering of the church. This is the fullness of freedom that Paul is describing. And those who are choosing to earn God's favor through acts of obedience, Paul suggests clearly didn't understand what the law says. So what does the law say? 
What does the law say? And to answer his question, Paul relates an allegory. As he notes, verse 24, an allegory. It's an allegory which in this case is drawn from an actual Old Testament narrative that's found in Genesis chapter 16, verse 21. Now, I would imagine that many of us are familiar with the story of Abraham here. Originally from Ur of the Chaldeans, Abram was commanded by God, as you know, to leave his home, his people, his country, and to go to the land that God would show him, where he would be blessed. His name made great. Those who blessed him would be blessed. Those who cursed him cursed, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And as we know, Abram obeyed. God directed him to the land of Canaan, where upon arrival he faced a number of challenges, but God was faithful. He renewed his covenant with Abram, promising him as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. At which point, and as Paul has already referenced, Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. Unfortunately, God's promise of a son didn't come fast enough for Abram's wife, Sarai. And so in a moment of weakness, she and Abram both looked to the resources that they had at hand, that they possessed to help God fulfill his word. Sarah gave Abram her handmaidens, Hagar, to be his wife, to serve as the, the means by which their family line would be perpetuated. And this ordinary act, or this act of the flesh, depending on your translation, as Paul describes it there, verse 23, this ordinary act resulted in the birth of Ishmael, the son of the slave woman. Now, a number of years later, as we continue through the story, when Abram and Sarah were crazy old, God fulfilled his promise, as he always does. And Sarah became pregnant at the age of 90. 90. Gave birth to Isaac, the son of the free woman. He's also referenced there in verse 23. And is born as the result, Paul tells us, of a promise. Now, while both of these events clearly reflect historical happenings, Paul suggests in verse 24 there that they may be taken figuratively. That's how our NIV reads, figuratively. If you have an ESV, it offers this may be interpreted allegorically, where I believe that what Paul is saying is that the, in these stories, there is a deeper meaning than the plain reading of the text can provide. Now, this doesn't mean that the events themselves actually shared a connection with Mount Sinai and, and then Jerusalem, but as one commentator has pointed out, Paul's claim to be giving an allegorical interpretation means simply that he is using one set of realities. So we're talking about the realities of the narrative of Sarah and Hagar. He's using this one set of realities to speak of another set of realities. So as a question, what are these realities? But these two covenants. Two covenants where the first, as Paul explains, is from Mount Sinai. And there's children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar, as Paul continues, stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. And right here, I believe, church, we need to see how it is that the apostle is relating these two realities. The story of Hagar and Sarah with Mount Sinai and Jerusalem. How is, how is he relating these two realities? So that we can better understand or see together how he answers the question, what does the law say? And along with others, I believe there's at least two ways in which Paul's connecting Hagar here in our story with Mount Sinai. Where the first, the first way is tied to the phrase the ordinary way or according to the flesh, depending on your translation, which is describing Ishmael's birth. And so 
That's the first way, now let me explain. For Paul, Abram and Hagar's union reflected their effort. Abram and Hagar's effort to get God's blessing without relying on God's enabling. And this is the same manner in which Israel received the law that was given on Mount Sinai. Following Moses' reception of the book of covenant, we're told in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 7 that he, Moses, took it, read it to the people, and they responded. We will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey. Words that we find Moses recording also in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 27. Unfortunately, as you know, and as the writer of Hebrews later makes clear in chapter 4, verse 2, Israel heard the message, but it was of no value to them. Why? Because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. And church, God knew this. He knew this, which is why only two verses after their agreement, as it was recorded in Deuteronomy 5.27, two verses later in Deuteronomy 5.29, God declared, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and to keep all my commands always. But they couldn't, could they? Couldn't do it on their own. And Joshua declared this very thing as he renewed the covenant following the people's arrival in the promised land. In Joshua chapter 24, he says, you are not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. And yet still, the people insisted on their ability to fulfill the law. And thus, in the people's reception of the law, I believe that we see what Paul was explaining to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 3. He was explaining the law's inability to save. Why? Because it was weakened by the sinful nature or the flesh. It was weakened by the sinful flesh. In other words, all that Israel could do in their flesh, in and of themselves, with regards to the law as it was given, was produce legalism. And legalism doesn't save, does it? In the same way, Abraham and Hagar's child of the flesh succeeded only in producing a slave, not an heir. And that's the first way that I believe Paul relates these two realities. The second is tied to slavery specific, which Paul views as the end for both, both realities. Just as Ishmael was born to a slave and therefore himself a slave, so was Israel enslaved under the law and incapable under the law. Apart from God's grace, through faith in the promised seed of Abraham, the one through whom all nations would be blessed as he and he alone would fulfill the law and then clothe those who by faith believed in him with his righteousness. So apart from God's grace through Christ, Israel was in slavery to the law. It's a slavery that Paul then observes also corresponds as he writes to the present city of Jerusalem, which, irony of ironies, was where his opponents were from. So if we go back then to that original question, what does the law say? I believe in these two realities as come compared and contrasted, I believe that the law says you need Jesus, friends, to be free because without Jesus it is impossible to please God. The law says that there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. For there's no one who is good but God. And he demands that we be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And we can't be. Only God can be God. Which is why the law was put in charge to lead us to who? Christ, who is God, our Savior. So have you heard what the law says this morning, church? What it actually says? We are all in slavery to sin and to death. Have you heard the law? What it actually says? Or are you still receiving it on your terms? Are you choosing, as did Israel before you, to see God's rules as a means of meriting God's favor? Have you heard what the law actually says? So Paul sets before us, as his readers, the reality of the law as it's conveyed allegorically. He then addresses the freedom resulting from God's promises. The freedom resulting from God's promises. So what is God's promised freedom? And we just asked what the law says. Now I believe we need to see what God's promised freedom is. And as before, Paul wraps this reality in allegory. As in verse 26 there in chapter 4, he writes, But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Where I believe what Paul is saying is, or has in mind, he also reflects in, as regards Jerusalem when he writes to the Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 1 when he says this, Since then, of those who have come to faith in Christ, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So it seems to me that for Paul, the Jerusalem that is above is where Christ dwells. And this is then equated with Sarah here in our text, who gave birth to Isaac, the child of the promise, who in verse 29, there of our chapter 4, Paul says, was born by the power of the Spirit. Born by the power of the Spirit. So as John describes in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born how? Not of natural descent, John says, nor of human decision or a husband's will. How? But born of God. So what's God's promised freedom? Well, for starters, it begins with God, doesn't it? He provides it, and he does so not to those Ishmael types, so to speak. As Paul writes there, verse 30, the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. The Ishmael types will, will not receive this inheritance because I believe they lack the desire. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't necessarily desire God, but in keeping with the analogy, as we've seen to this point, they do potentially desire God, but they desire Him on their terms, not His. Their desire to rest, or they desire to rest not on His resources, but on their own ability. They don't desire to be children in need of a father, or to carry the analogy further, they don't need desire to be the sick in need of a doctor. They desire God's blessing in exchange for their merit. And therefore, as Piper continues, he says they also lack the freedom of eternal life because those or no one who prefers to live in his own strength rather than trusting in God will be saved and go to heaven. What's more, the hardness of heart that spurns childlike dependence on God 
will also darken the understanding. And as everyone knows, the most common use of our mind is to justify our desires, isn't it? And therefore, deeply wrong desires will simply mislead the mind deeply until it's unable to understand what's right. And we see that in our world today, don't we? And so Ishmael types lack the freedom of desire because they refuse to rest in God's sovereign grace. They lack the freedom to understand or the ability to know God's will. And they lack the freedom of eternal joy because the life they've chosen to live is as one jumping out of a plane without a parachute that will work while possibly a season of their life will be marked by temporal material success. At the end, it only leads to destruction. Whereas, children of the promise find perfect freedom because they have the opportunity to know God as He has revealed Himself. They, they enjoy the freedom of ability as God, by His grace, has made them alive in Christ. Not by works, so that none can boast. Now, they're able to please God. They're able to call Christ Lord. They're able to resist the devil and to stand firm in the face of temptation. They have the freedom of opportunity, ability, and desire. As Paul writes, what was to their profit? They now consider loss. What's more, they consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus their Lord. They're new creations where the old is gone. The new has come and they hungrily pursue God as deer pant for water. And as they do, they find their joy made complete for their hearts share the longing of the psalmist. The psalmist who sang, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Do you know this freedom? And I pray that you do. Now, I can't answer as to your ability or desire in this moment, but I do know that today you've had the opportunity to hear the gospel, the means by which God has determined to bring life to spiritually dead men and women. We've all heard the gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for sinful people. Do you believe it? Now, have you acknowledged your part in his crucifixion, that it was your sin for which Christ died? Have you repented of that sin, and have you believed that Jesus is God's Son? Because if you have, then you've been converted. As one pastor theologian writes, you've been changed, transformed at the center of your life so that you desire now to rest in God's sovereign grace. Your desire to become, you desire to become as a little child and to receive the power and wisdom and holiness from your all-sufficient Father. And you hate the remaining tendencies in you to be proud and to trust in yourself or other people instead of God. Your delight is in the law of the Lord. And your choicest food, so to speak, is to do His will in reliance on His power. Do you know this freedom? Friends, I pray that you aren't slavishly forcing yourself through church motion in hopes of obtaining some favor with God. And I pray that your experience of the Christian life isn't defined by labor, under the burden of having to do what you don't want to do, because that's not freedom. As we've seen together, that's not freedom. God's promised freedom is the opportunity, ability, and desire to do what we love to do, and to do it forever in the presence of God who is our greatest desire. 
I hope and pray that you know this freedom this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, you are ultimate. You are our God. Father, there is nothing that we have that can compare with you. Lord, and we each and every one desire to be free. And in your word, you make clear what that freedom entails. How you, by your grace, open eyes through the hearing of your gospel, leading us to respond in faith, believing that you are who you say you are. God, and in that grace gift, you bring us to life. You transform our very being. So what we used to desire not to do now, we long for. Father, this is true freedom to know you and to desire to know you more. Lord, I pray that this is the experience and reality of every single person here. But God, if it's not, if having heard what true freedom is, I've become convicted by the fact that my heart doesn't desire these things. I might know what these things are as pertains to life in a Christian community, but I, I don't desire them for myself. I may be performing them, but only out of obligation or in an expectation that others may have placed upon me, but this isn't me. I don't desire these things, and it's, it's this morning for the first time that I've been able to acknowledge that. Father, only your Spirit can bring us alive to the fact that we can't, by what we do, merit our place in your family. God, that's something only you can do. Something only your Holy Spirit can do through your gospel, which we've heard this morning. I pray, God, that if there are any with uncertainty or questions as to whether the freedom that they have is full freedom, as you've defined it, God, that you would lead us this morning to ask, to talk about these things. Father, and if there are those who under this conviction desire that freedom, we pray that you would, by your grace, draw them to yourself. Father, we thank you for the assurance that we have, that we may have, because it's all tied to Jesus. And we pray these things in his name.